Welcome to episode four of the Media Sport podcast series. I am speaking to you from today from Australia's national capital, Canberra, sitting with this episode's guest, Deborah Lupton, a centenary research professor based in the News and Media Research Centre at the University of Canberra. Our last episode dealt with locative and mobile media. Today our focus shifts to a related dimension of located media and physical activity, wearable media devices, apps and self-tracking technologies used for personal health and fitness. Many listeners will, for example, be familiar with wearable devices used for running and cycling, such as the Fitbit, the Jawbone or Nike's Fuel Band, and apps such as Strava, RunKeeper and MyCage. The increasing popularity of these devices raises important issues in terms of privacy, surveillance and the commodification of personal data. Deborah Lupton researches, writes and talks about these issues extensively. A sociologist whose work intersects with media, communication and cultural studies, she is the author of over a dozen books, including Risk, published by Routledge, and Medicine and Culture, Illness, Disease and the Body, a book now in its third edition. Her recent work on the quantified self has appeared in journals such as Sport, Education and Society, Social Theory and Health, and Critical Public Health. I also recommend that listeners access her scholarly blog, This Sociological Life, which can be found through the following URL, simplysociology.wordpress.com. Deborah's Twitter handle is at D-A Lupton, L-U-P-T-O-N. Deborah, thanks for joining us for the Media Sport Podcast Series. It's a pleasure, Brett. I just wanted to start by asking what the term quantified self means and how you go about using it in your commentaries and analyses. Well, it really came out of two Wired magazine editors, Kevin Kelly and Gary Wolfe. They're the ones who invented the term. And it was in the late first decade of this century, so around 2007, that they decided that, well, they'd noticed colleagues and friends using devices or apps to track aspects of their lives, not just their bodies, but it might have been their work productivity or their social encounters all their phone calls, any, you know, their moods, lots of different aspects of their lives. And they decided that they could see the, the, the emergence of what they call a movement, but it's really, I guess, just an aggregation of practices. And they set up this website called The Quantified Self. And they also set up The Quantified Self Labs. So they have a very thriving community going on this website. Um, Gary Wolf's written quite a few um, articles for the popular press and for Wired magazine. Um, they have many blog posts on their website, Quantified Self. So really, that's where I came across the term, and you know, it's, it's they, they who brought it into being. So it's been going around now for, I guess, it's been really sort of emerging into the popular consciousness since 2008, which is when they set up the website. Um, and so it, I, I actually did a study where I, I looked at Factiva, the Factiva news um, online news source where you can look at um, how topics are covered throughout the world, um, newspapers, and I looked to see how often the quantified self is used as a term, and it was interesting how it had developed since its first use when when Gary was um, interviewed about it for, a, for an American newspaper back in, again, I think in 2007, or might have been 2000, early 2008. Um, so that was the first mention in the popular press, and it's since sort of moved out. And so lots of 
lots of journalists have taken it up and lots of sort of people writing blogs on self-tracking have taken up the term the quantified self just to refer to how people self-track aspects of their lives. And of course the, the motto of the website is self-knowledge through numbers. So and you know if you look at Gary Wolf's early writings on the quantified self, he very much talks about quantified data and mm. how um, that gathering these sorts of data, which is often now by digital devices, is a way of learning more about yourself and not only learning about yourself, but then using the knowledge that you gain to optimise your life, improve your life in some way. Okay, and what are the examples of some of the technologies you're focusing on, the apps or the, you know, the tracking technologies that you're particularly interested in and why those ones? Well, I'm, I'm sort of writing a book on it now, which the publishers actually want to call The Quantified Self, and I think I'll use the subtitle The Sociology of Self-Tracking, because I actually prefer the term self-tracking, because I think The Quantified Self, not only is it very strongly associated with that website, but it also tends not to incorporate the idea that you can find data about yourself that might be qualified, you know, or not a, a number, you know, it might be... Um, words you write in a journal, for example, something very textual and um, qualitative. So um, if you take that approach to self-tracking, then you can look at not only the traditional forms of writing about your life and documenting your life, which may be a diary or a journal, um, but also the digital devices that are now around, which tend to be referred to when people talk about the quantified self. So it's your apps where you can upload the apps to your mobile device and you can you know, make the app record aspects of your life. Again, it, could, it not just not just tell from the embodiment. It may be your social encounters. It may be you know your phone calls. Um, it may be your moods. Um, it may be your work. Work productivity is a big thing I've noticed in mm. software related to self tracking, um, because again, it gets back to that notion that if you self track, you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it to be a productive and a healthy and a successful person. So, and you get a constellation of wearable devices. You get um, uh, various bands and things that you can wear around your, your wrist. You get little um, devices you can clip onto your waistband. You can get um, bands you can wear around your head. Um, you can now get self tracking uh, sensors that can be woven into clothing and sports shoes and toothbrushes <laughs> and forks. <laughs> so there's a, there's a massive array of devices that you can use now. And of course Apple's just released its watch, which is, well released news of its watch, which is due to be um, released to the public in early 2015. Uh, uh, and the watch has embedded self-tracking apps already in it. Um, and of course it's worn as a digital watch. So you're getting, you know, one of you know one of the major internet empires really focusing on self-tracking, and particularly in relation to health. And given that way of thinking, I mean, and I understand this is is speculative in many ways, but what is it about people who really enjoy this process? Do you think what you know is it a, a sense of selfhood, a sense of in you know, there's a normative dimension to it in terms of what you should be that I find slightly worrying. But you know, what what do you think is the attraction for some people? Well, if you use the quantified self website as a sort of resource for how people are talking about what they're doing, and there's many accounts there of people, you know, people who are part of the movement, um, giving talks. That's a very popular way to a show and tell talk mm. where people get up and they show visualizations that they've made of their data. 
Now, it's a very geek-driven movement as well. It came out of Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, that's the epicentre of Quantified Self. Um, of course, Wired Magazine has a strong relationship there. Um, so there is that geeky aspect of it. People like the people who are doing it are often people who like tinkering around with devices and seeing how they can make them work in their lives. So there's that aspect of it. Um, when you look at how some people talk about how they use their data, their personal data, there's often this sense of control that they talk about wanting to gain and exert over their lives. So they, they and there's, there was a really interesting term used in one woman's blog post on quantifying herself, where she talked about the comfort of the numbers, mm. and how when she felt out of control in her life and that life was becoming a bit chaotic, she used self-tracking using lots of sort of different methods as a way of seeing what was going on in her life, getting more knowledge about the finer details of her life, and even regardless of what she did with those data from there on, the fact that she was doing that to her was exerting more control over what she saw as a more chaotic life than she wanted. But interestingly enough, this woman has got this website called The Unquantified Self because she then moved away from quantifying herself because she was becoming, she thought she was becoming too obsessive about it. So she writes about how she drew comfort, you know, she, she, and she acknowledges she was a slightly obsessive type and that she was becoming too obsessive about her numbers and that's mm -hmm. why she decided to unquantify herself. But even if you don't look, you know, if you, if you get away from those sorts of extremes of, of perhaps obsessiveness, I think the fact that these devices exist, that, that some people think, well, you know, let's give it a go. These are fun, you know, I can, I can easily document my bike ride or my run um, or my heart rate, you know, doing whatever other exercise, swimming or whatever. Um, and they have that social function as well, that if you choose to share it with other people on social media, it's very easy to do that, even if you want to share it with your doctor, which is often promoted as a way of, um, you know, encouraging patient engagement by collecting data about oneself and then sharing health-related data with your doctor, um, then that is, that is a facility of these technologies that some people really enjoy as well. So, you know, I guess there might, might be a little bit of boasting going on there so that you can say, you know, I, I did this many kilometres today in my bike ride and put that up on Twitter or Facebook. And that was a question I, I had around the performance of the self. Mm. You know, I, I keep thinking of some of the literature I've read around the sort of profiles that people create for themselves in social networking that puts up a, a front stage presence that's mm. perhaps more attractive and exciting than you know, the reality of people's mundane routines. Is, do, you, do you think there is that sense of competitiveness going on between people or is it, you know... I think or that, that can be a part of it and it certainly is a part on, on platforms such as Strava where bike riders, cyclists can map um, the same route and compare how they did on that particular route that, that other people, um, you know, uh, performed on. Um, and, you know, there's a very competitive aspect of that. Mm. Um, so that's an overtly competitive side of it. But I think, too, that in our age of, you know, the healthest discourse that we have where we very much value people who are physically fit and who are, you know, active and who are slim and so-called healthy, you know, as a consequence. You know, there's a lot of very, um, well, you know, cultural norms associated with that as well as cultural value to have mm -hmm. a slim, fit, healthy 
physically active body is to have the ideal body in our society and in many other um, Western societies. So these, these sorts of self-tracking devices, not only, even if you don't share your data with others, you might get a sense of um, satisfaction um, watching your weight go down if you're trying to lose weight, um, watching your steps go up if you're trying to increase your activity. I think there's an inherent se se sense of satisfaction that people can get from, from those sorts of, of figures and it encourages them. And it certainly, you know, a lot of people talk about how it does help them lose weight, you know, these sorts of self-tracking devices and all they do help them get more, more active. So, I mean, they do work for a lot of people. And you write about... You've written about the use of these technologies in, in schools and for physical education. Um, I mean, what are the, uh, I suppose, what are you focusing on when you're writing about the use for, for children in particular? I mean, you know, there's obviously privacy and surveillance implications and commercialisation of... Well, in the context of health and physical education at schools, what's concerning me is that Children have very little control, if any, voluntary control over how, you know, what they're encouraged or expected or incited to do in the school-based physical education setting. And I think there's been a long and unhappy history of, you know, children who are not naturally sportily, sporty and proficient or who might be overweight, you know, and considered, you know, therefore, therefore to be not sporty types, um, conforming to the norm of the appropriate child health and fit, fit um, child body. Um, you know, for many people, physical education at school can be a very negative experience. And I think bringing in digital self-tracking technologies, which is happening in some schools already, um, you know, for example, if a PE teacher can hand out heart rate monitors to students and then look at their iPad and get them to run laps, and they can, that teacher can see straight away who's, you know, who's putting in a big effort and who isn't perhaps, you know, who's slacking off a little bit. Um, and it just makes it harder to hide if you're a student who doesn't enjoy physical exercise or who may be, um, you know, overweight or clumsy or uncoordinated. You know, it just, I think it, not only is it ever more increased surveillance over these children's bodies in a context in which they're constantly under surveillance in, in most contexts in the classroom, mm. it, it also means it's very hard for your less active and less proficient student to, to kind of hide from the surveillant gaze. Um, and I think, you know, there's, in, in Australia we're not as sort of, we don't employ as many technologies for surveillance of students as in some countries like the US and UK where CCTV cameras are everywhere in schools and fingerprint technology to identify children mm. and even um, RFID badges in school uniforms. We haven't got to that point yet, um, but, but we may well do. And... Um, the commercialisation aspect of it is important too because if outside companies start pushing these technologies on schools and then offering good deals and so on, then it becomes more about making money for those companies and it becomes more about the good deal that the, that the school might get. It becomes more about how easy it might be for the PE teacher to use these new and funky technologies and it becomes a lot less about the individual student's experience, mm. especially if it's a negative experience. And do you, is there much evidence of serious discussion either within education departments, media or within school communities around the commodification ownership and who has the right to manipulate this sort of data? Well, no, because it's all very new, Brett. You know, it's just, just beginning to happen. There's this guy called the PE Geek, Jared Robinson, who's actually an Australian physical ed education teacher, but he 
I don't know if, when he gets time to do any teaching because he does a huge number of workshops. So he's got this business going around the country and overseas running workshops on how to use digital technologies in PE. So he's got a little burgeoning enterprise going there. Um, and he's one of the leading lights in PE around digital technologies. So and he actually develops his own apps and his own platforms and things, game, gamified you know, movement um, platforms and things to encourage children to, again, it's competitive, see how many steps you've done today and how does that compare with your school, your class, you know, the world. Mm. Um, so it, because it's just, we're just at the dawn of all this, really, that... Um, you know, not, not all schools, maybe it's still only the minority, are using these technologies. Although, having said that, I know that my younger daughter's school here in Canberra, they do have a walking program which is actually extracurricular. It's purely voluntary, but they have a thing where parents and children are encouraged to walk around the oval and they get, fitted, get given pedometers and see how many kilometres they and the, you know, the group can accumulate. So, you know, those sort of little initiatives are the beginning of it. As I say, that's purely voluntary, but it's not going to be too much longer before it becomes involuntary and they just hand, you know, things like digital pedometers or heart rate monitors are going to be just handed out as a routine aspect of PE lessons. How does this, I mean, you speak of, you refer to selfhood a lot, I mean, changing notions of selfhood. How do all these, you know, if you're looking at the quantified self, self-tracking technologies, different forms of self-tracking, how does this speak in a sociological sense to changing notions of selfhood in contemporary society? Well, it does speak to the fact that we are becoming increasingly digitised, so our representations of ourselves to others and to ourselves, our understandings of ourselves are becoming more mediated through digital technologies, um, whether it's social media or even digital cameras or selfies or you know, digital video or... Um, all the self-tracking devices. Um, another example is us as academics. We're becoming very digitised in terms of um, platforms that, like Google Scholar, that measure our citation indices. Um, I mean, we can't opt out of that. That's that's automatically collected on us. Um, so we are, you know, we have become digitised assemblages, um, often involuntarily, and those sorts of um, data are, are being used often to either support or not support our, you know, chances of getting a research grant or a promotion or, or a new job. So, you know, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in schools, whether it's in health and medicine, um, these kinds of technologies are just um, transforming the way that we live, live our lives, the way that we're assessed by other people, the way that we represent ourselves. And because, um, you know, we are in a sense of society, um, you know, when we move around in public space, we're constantly being surveilled by CCTV cameras or other sensor-based technologies in traffic lights, you know, at airports. We, we can't opt out of that. That's just, you know, every time we do a, go onto a search engine, we're being tracked by that search engine and, um, you know, ads are being thrust in our faces. So we, we really can't opt out of that anymore. I don't think there's any way, really, we can opt out in a society like Australia of, of being in some way digitally surveilled. So I think the inevitability of that is that um, and that we, we, we're slowly becoming aware of how our personal data are becoming commercialised by companies like Google and Amazon, Apple. Um, we're also becoming aware since Edward Snowden's revelations of how our, 
our data are being surveilled by national security agencies. So I think as, it, as citizens, as individuals, we are slowly becoming aware of just how our personal data are being used. But you know, there's, there's a long way, I think, for many people to really come to terms with that and to be across um, how, we, how our personal data are being collected by other actors and agencies apart from ourselves. And I suppose in trying to find some potential you know, for, for, for meaningful critique there, where are the, I mean, you mentioned Snowden. Do you see any evidence or if it is there, where is it coming from for meaningful critique that actually might raise that sort of awareness uh, around, around those issues? I think there is evidence of that. If you look at quite a few privacy organisations around the world, they're really beginning to be concerned and to write, to put out interesting reports that are highly critical um, of the way our personal data are being used. Um, and that's just one example. Uh, you know, the news media does cover, has been covering um, the Snowden you know, release of, of the documents as they happen. Um, so there is an interest in the news media on privacy issues and data security issues. So, and of course, there are quite a few academics now around the world writing on, on these things. So there's, there's, there's a sort of coming together now, this sort of critique some really interesting academics writing, you know, critiques of big data, for example, and of data valence and, um, you know, the ways that digital data are being used in a, across a variety of, of contexts and domains. And I think for me personally, what I've been finding most interesting is making those connections between what happens to the personal data that we might, might voluntarily collect on ourselves and um, who, who then use, takes up those data and how much control we have over those data, if, we, if it then goes off into the cloud computing archives, well, basically we have no control over those data and, and who uses and repurposes the data. And one interesting thing I know is that, that Apple, with their, with their new um, health kit um, platform for inviting developers of health-related apps, they actually say in their guidelines to developers that they can't use the data, personal data that they collect on users to, um, to direct advertising at them. They can't use the data for any other, they can't sell the data to anyone else. And so I think we are beginning to see, at least with Apple, as again one of the big internet empires, they are at least paying attention to what they perceive to be people's concerns about the privacy of their personal data. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that it's coming from Apple who um, you know, often get lumped in with all the other majors, Google and Amazon. Well, what Apple say is, what Tim Cook says, is that our devices are, is where we make the money, not the data. Mm. So that's where the, the big difference is. They don't see the data as being part of their kind of business model. Okay, that's interesting. And can you also recently convened a, a research symposium uh, titled Big Data Cultures? What what happened during the symposium and sort of what, what arguments and ideas have been put forward? Oh, it's interesting. We did have a, a few um, few analyses of theoretical analyses of the quantified self. So I think, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely seeing, in fact, I've got two, you know, two anonymously written journal articles waiting for me to review from two different high-ranked journals at the moment on the quantified self. Mm. Um, so I can see, again, issues around the quantified self and self-tracking there's quite a few academics in sociology, media and cultural studies who are, who are interested in that whole phenomenon. 
Um, so we had we had actually two PhD students talking about the quantified self at the Big Data Cultures Symposium. Um, I talked about um, artists and designers' critiques of big data and so how what that can tell us as um, critical sociologists about societal responses to big data because I think by looking at artist critiques you get some really interesting insights into what broader societal critiques might be. Um, and so it was had, we had, we had a, a talk by um, a guy who's a data visualisation person so that was interesting to see how he kind of uses big data and makes it look beautiful which is of course a big aspect of data visualisations, the whole, whole aspect of the, of the aesthetics of how you can turn digital data into pretty looking mm. pictures or Maybe graphs. Melissa Gregg calls it a data spectacle. Yes, mm. yes. And I was just reading an article by Rowan Wilkin when he talks about the, the sublime, you know, the Kantian notion of the sublime and the, the aesthetics of, of digital data visualisations. So, so yeah, that, I think that's a really how what people do with the data is interesting. How they make make digital data look look interesting. And I'm actually writing about 3D printing at the moment in embodiment, because I'm I'm arguing that 3D printing, when you print out say someone's heart, for medical purposes, um, you know, surgeons have been printing them out to to look to look at a diseased heart, for example, if they have to do heart surgery. Um, and so they can hold the actual you know, replica of the organ in their hand. And they can show to the patient, say, here is your heart, this is what the problem is, this is what we're going to do to it. And so what I'm arguing in this paper, which I literally started writing a week ago, is, is that, you know, that's bringing the sort of visual into the haptic, back into the haptic, mm. because you are getting people able to touch a replica of their organ. Um, and some people have been doing it with self-tracking data as well. They've been turning self-tracked data like heart, heart rate data and there's a, a researcher at um, my university um, who's, who's looking at, Stephen Barassi's his name is, he's actually, he does 3D printing and he, he took a year of his heart, blood, sorry, his blood pressure data and turned it into metal, a metal bowl which made a particular sound when you rubbed your finger around it. It's like a Tibetan singing bowl and his argument is that he's just turning, he's turning what normally would be viewed as a 2D you know, visual data like in a graph or something, he's, he's making a 3D object of it, but it also has oral properties. It has a certain sound to it, so you can touch it and you can hear it. Now, I'm really quite fascinated by, by how those sorts of data are being used in different ways uh, to sort of engage other senses in terms of how we respond to our data. Um, anyway, that's going a bit, of, a bit away from big data culture symposium, but I think what, I'm I was, what I was trying to do in getting that symposium together was um, looking at those sort of groundbreaking aspects of how we conceptualise and think of the social aspects and cultural aspects of big data. So, um, you know, we did have some interesting talks there um, which did talk about, did, did try to cite big data as a cultural phenomenon, which again, it's, a, it's an area which is so new that yes, people have started writing about it, but it's only in the last few years because big data itself as a phenomenon is just a few years old, really. Mm. So what I was trying to do is really be the, I guess it was the first Australian sort of forum for that sort of approach to, to analysing big data. 
Yeah. Look, what can we look, uh, just as a way of finishing, I mean, what you, you've obviously got a lot on the go, which, which is wonderful, mm-hmm. but what, what, what can we look forward to over the next year or two, either, I suppose, both within the area of self-tracking that you're working on, as well as anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, well, there is this book that I'm writing on self-tracking, uh, so I will be working on that now, and it will be finished around um, April next year. So I'll be covering a whole range of issues around, you know, how we understand the self, self-tracking self in relation to our selfhood and embodiment and also the different domains in which self-tracking is now expanding. For, you know, for example, in health insurance where people are now um, often incited to upload their personal data to health insurers so that they can get customised plans and premiums based on their their activities, so I think that's going to become even I an mean, even bigger area of health insurance and life insurance for that matter. Um, I'm also going to write a book on critical digital health because I, you know that's an area that I have been working on a lot lately as well. So looking at the whole the whole spectrum of digital health technologies from apps to you know virtual reality and medical training to the 3D use of, you know, 3D printed organs, which hasn't happened yet, but they're certainly working on it, to 3D anatomical models, um, and the whole range of using 3D printing in, in medicine. Um, I think there's a lot more to say about apps, really. I don't think there's been enough written on apps, and I've just finished an article called Apps as, a, apps as Artifacts, which looks at the notion of apps as socio-cultural artifacts and how we need to, you know, theorise apps more than we have done. Hardly anyone has. That's Why? Right. That's you know why? Question. They're such a dominant cultural form now. Mm. Um, you know, Apple and Apple App Store and Google Play have each released over a million apps now. Mm. And I think it's studies suggest that people have about twenty-five or so apps on their phones, if they have a smartphone. So they're certainly they're certainly uploaded. The interesting question is what people do with them once they upload them, because I'm you know. There's research to suggest that they might only use an app once or twice, particularly a health-related app. So for those people who do use them more than once or twice, what is it about the app or about the use of the app that means that they continue on with the app? I think there's a lot more to research there, so I'd like to extend that research. You know, there's a whole area there. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in the digitisation of children as well, so I'm writing... I'm about to do a survey actually that looks at pregnant women and early mothers' use of apps. Again, it's an app-related research and I'd like to follow on with um, interviews if I get some funding, uh, interviews with women about, you know, once I get the survey results, actually doing some in-depth research about women about how they use apps in relation to pregnancy and early motherhood. Um, And the whole big data thing, I'm going to continue writing a lot about big data cultures, so... I guess they're, they're the sort of areas, they're the, they're the areas that I'll be working on the next year or two, Brett, and I think, yeah, they'll keep me pretty busy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. Thanks for your time and, and for giving, you know, so many well, generous answers to the Media Sport podcast series. You're very welcome. <laughs>